So this afternoon we're really pleased to have four of the authors with us. We have uh, Ray Roenfeld, we have Kyle Duval, we have Wendy Jackson and Jeff Madigan. These people are all very well known to you. So the first presenter, and the presenters will all describe for you the chapter that they have contributed and will give us a thumbnail sketch of um, the issues which they regard as important. And we'll take them in that order. We'll hear firstly from Ray, then from Kale, from Wendy and from Jeff. So thank you very much, Ray. We've got you busy with traffic and you're back again to tell us about your contribution. Thank you very much, Lyle. Um, this chapter that I wrote, which for some reason or other was uh, put in first place in the book, came into the book rather late and it actually arose out of a sermon I preached and David Tasker heard me preach this sermon and he said, you need to write that out as a chapter for the book. Um, basically, in the chapter, what I tried to do, and the chapter is called um, Women's Ordination, Why Not? Exclamation mark, question mark, and that describes what the book is, what the chapter is about. Uh, what I've been, what I've tried to do is describe the case against women's ordination, so why not? And then the case for women's ordination, which is why not? And, uh, and so the, the, uh, basically the, um, and I preached this this morning at Memorial Church, was, which was an interesting experience. Um, so this is fresh in my mind. The, the case against is, firstly, a plain reading of Scripture. There are texts, uh, Pauline texts, that indicate very clearly that women are, be, are to be silent in church and that uh, the man is the head of the wife and so forth. An argument from silence, there is in fact no... Um, no command in scripture to, um, to ordain women um, and of course no, uh, no priest in Old Testament times, no apostles in New Testament times were women or the apostles that Jesus chose at least. A, a key argument against, and I was very surprised at the, at the um, uh, Theology of Ordination subcommittee, a key argument against is that uh, in order to be a pastor, you have to be the husband of one wife. Um, that's a huge argument. Um, and then lastly, in those four arguments, there is the problem of the slippery slope. Where, If we ordain women, where will this actually end up? And then why not? Uh, the first point is actually an argument from silence as well. And that is that there is no text in scripture commanding the ordination of men. Sorry about that. But there's none. So if there's no text commanding the ordination of men, if we're going to ordain, why couldn't we in fact ordain both men and women? The second um, very strong argument in, this, in the positive case is that in creation and salvation there is absolute equality between men and women. Certainly in salvation, in Jesus Christ there's no male, female, no bond free, no Jew, Gentile. And that's the big issue. If in salvation, which is the big issue, then ministry arises out of salvation. And then, of course, the affirmation of women by Jesus and Paul and then uh, in order to uh, 
in order to understand scripture, we have to take into account both the literary and the historical context. And then fifthly, that the gifts of the Spirit are not gender specific. And then in the last part of the chapter, I turn to Acts chapter 15, which describes the earliest church council. And I use that chapter to, talk, to, to look at scripture or the authority of scripture through the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. In other words, God gave us half a brain to think with, to reason with, and if something is totally unreasonable, then it should push us back to scripture to ask again, have we actually understood scripture correctly? Um, tradition. Uh, and you can look at, look at Acts chapter 15, which is not about women or women's ordination. It's about whether uh, Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to come into the church. There are many more texts saying that circumcision is absolutely necessary than there are texts forbidding women to speak in church. So here's the early church trying to deal with that issue through these ideas of thinking it through. Acts 15 verse 6 talks about much discussion. They were using their reasoning. Uh, Acts chapter, one, uh, chapter 15 verse 1 talks about the law of Moses, their tradition. Uh, verses 16 to 18, sorry, not 16 to 18, around verses 8 and 9, uh, Peter appeals to experience. He says, um, God is, through his spirit, using people to open up the gospel to the Gentiles. So surely, surely the church needs to acknowledge that. And then verses 16 to 19, they clinch the argument regarding circumcision and so forth by citing the prophets, where the prophets talk about the Gentiles coming to God into, in, into community with the people of God. Uh, a verse that I'm sure until that experience, the Holy Spirit working among the Gentiles, they would never have thought of referencing. So what I'm really saying is that when we come to this issue of women in ministry, we ought to use the same sort of thing rather than just saying, is it, uh, is it, does it accord with specific wording in scripture? Now, one thing I didn't do this morning, and that was I didn't show a cartoon that I asked my son-in-law to draw, and this was not published in the book, although I did suggest that it could be the cover of the book. And the cartoon is it's a little irreverent because it's God speaking to the angel Gabriel, and God is saying to Gabriel, Gabriel, I said Alan, A-L-L-A-N, not Alan. It's always difficult speaking after Ray. <laughs> Good afternoon, everybody. It's been a wonderful morning, hasn't it? I must thank our presenters for talking from their hearts and sharing their journey with us. And uh, I, I know, along with everyone else here today, have been, uh, have been richly blessed. So to our presenters, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. I thank Women in Ministry for this uh, very good initiative as well. Uh, I had the privilege of writing on the New Testament, and I looked at uh, five, five Greek words that range from choose, appoint, call, 
Uh, in the King James Version, interestingly, they're all translated as ordain. And what I discovered, and to reiterate some of the points that Ray has already raised, is that all of these words, of course, had no reference to gender. What they were, particularly the ones in, in the Gospels, were about coming into relationship with Jesus. In fact, Mark puts it as he appointed them to be with him. Such relational language. And it's from that context of being with him that the disciples were then to go out and proclaim him to the world. So having looked at those words, I came to the conclusion that those words within the New Testament, ranging from the Gospels right through to Paul's interactions with Timothy, talk to us about what we would call today as Adventists the inner call. In my chapter, I articulated the view that this inner call was the sovereign act of God. That God, at his, at his fancy, chose who it is he wanted to proclaim his message. The other thing I noticed was that this inner call was something um, the individuals then responded to, and it was primarily about proclaiming Jesus to the world. So that's the conclusion I came to in terms of looking at uh, the various Greek nuances on choose, appoint, call, select, and place within the New Testament. The second thing I looked at was the notion of laying on of hands. And as you're well aware, New Testament teaching to a large extent comes out of the matrix of Old Testament paradigms. The, the service of laying on of hands is an Old Testament practice. And the New Testament church simply continued that practice. Again, it's not uh, gender related in any way, but rather it's the affirmation on that individual by the community of faith. Uh, we see this in Acts 1, we see it again in Acts 13. And it is the community acknowledging the gifts that God has bestowed upon an individual. Uh, there is no, you know, um, mystical experience in the laying on of hands. There isn't a transfer of power or a direct line of access to God. No, it's simply the community of faith acknowledging what God in fact is doing in that person's life through his or her giftedness. In wrapping up the chapter, I kind of moved toward uh, developing a theology of ordination. And um, I spoke about the need to be inclusive. Uh, I spoke about the fact that it's at baptism under the Spirit's sovereign direction that he gives us, that he empowers us, and that the church simply acknowledges and affirms that. The Old Covenant, entrance into the Old Covenant was based on a sexual distinctive, which is circumcision. Interestingly, entrance into the New Covenant is based on a non-sexual distinctive, and that is baptism. And so entrance into the New Covenant on the basis of a non-sexual distinctive, baptism, makes us all equal at the foot of the cross and equal before God's sight as his sons and his daughters. Um, we live in a complex world and sadly, to use the language of Philip Jenkins, uh, 
you know, the global south, what we traditionally call the third world, will continue to have the loudest voice within our church because it's within those sectors of the world where Christianity is growing, growing the fastest and the strongest. And so the global south will continue to dominate um, the agenda of the global church. My conclusions were that God has called all men and women, young and old, into his service. And uh, ultimately, it's his service. You know, I share with my students, and I'm just going a little off cuff now, Lyle. I share with my students um, the notion of, well, it's not really my ministry, you know. It's not really my ministry. And when you look at the paradigm of Luke and Acts, the church in Acts continuing the ministry of Jesus, all that Jesus did in his ministry, is something the church simply continues and builds on through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so in some sense, I don't really talk about my ministry, but our ministry. And I speak of the ministry of Jesus in us and through us. And so it's his ministry and he's invited all of us, all of us, to share in his ministry in taking his love into the world. Thank you. My chapter invited you to step back a little bit um, from the issue of woman's ordination and to look at a little bit more about the theology um, of ordination itself. And I think this is an important thing because sometimes we rush in to try and understand whether we should ordain woman or not without actually understanding what ordination is about. And so I had a very specific question to answer, and that question was, is ordination a sacrament, or should it be a sacrament in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Now, some of you are probably going, well, Adventists have never accepted this as a sacrament. Ellen White says very clearly this isn't a sacrament. But here's the problem. A lot of our attitudes suggest we do believe in a sacramental view of ordination. As soon as we start thinking that there is a major difference between someone who's ordained and is not ordained, we've started moving down a sacramental track. So it becomes a very important question to ask. And so my chapter starts by, first of all, tracing the history of the word sacrament because the word sacrament hasn't always meant the same thing. And so it moves from thinking about it simply uh, as an oath of allegiance through to its more common definition where it is a symbol that's been ordained or instituted by Christ and in some way confers grace. In addition, I then follow through and look at how ordination has sometimes been associated with this idea of a sacrament. Uh, and one of the things that's really important to understand is that this comes very strongly out of the sacerdotal system of the Catholic Church. That is, it was necessary that the ordained person was seen as different because they were responsible for conveying the grace through the Mass. Okay, so the idea of this association has a very Catholic background. So having laid that foundation to answer the question whether ordination should be considered a sacrament, I found myself asking four separate questions. First of all, is ordination symbolic? Second, does it confer grace? Third, 
did Christ initiate this? And then finally, um, is there an inherent difference between someone who's ordained and is not ordained? So I answer these four questions. Now the first question um, overlaps with what Kale was doing uh, because of course the word ordination doesn't actually occur in scripture and so I had to look at the laying on of hands as a proxy um, but I look at symbolism of laying on of hands. So there's a, quite a bit of overlap between our papers on this. And I trace this through looking at the symbolism of hand itself, followed through the laying on of hands. Um, and, I, and I note that there's some very strong ideas to do with representation and identity associated, but no transfer of necessarily authority or anything else. And there's no, no transfer of grace simply by uh, hands-on. It's more a recognition of what the Holy Spirit has done. My second question, really asking whether grace is transferred, is probably the most complex and the most controversial part of the chapter, uh, and perhaps the most technical. And I just want to say thank you to my New Testament colleagues for correcting my Greek and making sure that I had my Greek correct in this section. Um, but I, what I do is I look at the one major example that everybody holds up of saying, this proves that ordination confers grace, and that is the idea of Timothy. And so you will find most commentators refer to the story of Timothy to prove that ordination confers grace. I look closely at the texts involved here um, and suggest that in reality, there are too many assumptions that we have to make to make that conclusion that grace was transferred at an ordination or an installation to office in the case of Timothy. That there are a lot of other possibilities that could be intended here. And furthermore, that we cannot suggest this is normative because in all the other places that Paul actually um, appoints leaders, we have no other discussions of, quote, ordination or even necessary laying on of hands. The third section is the shortest one, uh, and that one looks specifically um, at whether Christ instituted uh, ordination or not, and I conclude that he appoints leaders but doesn't necessarily ordain. And then the final, final question looking at is there an inherent difference between those who are ordained and those who are not ordained, I start with talking about what the Catholic Church has said and how they try and prove that there is a difference and again, this comes back to the sacerdotal idea that the priest somehow has to represent Christ to be giving the sacraments. And then I, I prove that the biblically we cannot support this, and I do it through three major arguments. First being the priesthood of all believers. The second looking at the words for um, clergy and laos in scripture. And then the third argument um, coming from the words that are actually used to talk about the role of New Testament leaders. So ultimately I come down to the conclusion that no, we should not think about ordination as a sacrament in the church, that the only, only criteria that, that really meets is one of symbolism, and then I have a couple of suggestions of how this might play out and think, make us think about our pra actual current practices. For instance, I talk about the fact that when we ordain pastors, we seem to have these big days where that's the only thing that happens on the day. But when we ordain elders, it's kind of a little slot in the church service. And then the rest of the people who are in other particular offices 
don't get any recognition at all. So we need to think about how do we actually, in practice, think about the fact that someone who is ordained is not necessarily someone who is better than or different than uh, another member of the congregation. I also talk about the fact that because there's the idea of representation, um, that the congregation should actually be involved in the ordination process rather than just purely um, others who have been ordained, which tends to be the common practice. I'm not a theologian. <clears throat> My chapter also grew out of a sermon that I presented. It took me several weeks to get what I wanted to say in the sermon down to 25 minutes, so I don't believe that I can summarise it for you, to you in five. The, general, the division president asked me to have it ready for publication later that evening. <laughs> <laughs> Women's ordination had been the subject of years of church-sponsored study groups, seminars. It was commented on by online media. It came out in church media, and it seemed apparent to me that none of these forums, or fora, if you wish to be pedantic, did any sort of consensus, produce any consensus, or look like producing a consensus. My concern was the way in which the process, and finally the vote, was going to affect members of the church that I loved. I was concerned for the fact that in these discussions, proving oneself to be correct, seemed to be a lot more important than being civil or even in being Christian. I was even more concerned at the rhetoric of exclusion that came too easily to some of the main participants in the discussion, and Cara commented very powerfully on that this morning. I also came to the conclusion that there were probably Bible-loving, caring Christians sitting on each side of the debate. The topic became even more complex for me when I realised that whatever way the vote at the GC went, there would be people in the church who moments before were sincerely and with moral and theological conviction arguing against the course that had just been voted. We had set ourselves up for a lose-lose situation. Did we expect these people to shrug their shoulders and say, I suddenly see this all differently? Would we really want them to do that? And if they did that, would it be an evidence of a healthy church? My answers to each of those questions was no, which means that logically I must give you the right to disagree vigorously with me. And the driving force behind the sermon was to try and say something that would enable a congregation to remain coherent, to provide pastoral care and counsel to all, and for the congregation to display enough of Christ for the congregation to be the light of the world. Above all, it needed to be a congregation that could retain the respect and allegiance of the younger generations and be comprehensible to the community and culture in which it found itself. Scripture seemed to me to suggest that we should expect change, God even telling Israel through Isaiah that they needed to forget the past because he wanted to do something new. And the past that he told them to forget was as integral to their being as you could imagine. The particular past mentioned in that text is the Exodus. It is unrealistic too for us to expect that all members of our church are going to agree on all aspects of its teaching and practice or even adjust to change at the same rate. Unity just has to be something different from that. 
our view of unity seems to be holding us back. Personality, education and culture all contribute to the differences in the way we understand scripture. Added to that, the Bible teaches that we should expect people to change during the course of their Christian journeys. I can't take where I am on my journey now and say that is where all members must be, always. I don't want to return to the understandings I had at 19, and I suspect it might be unwise for me to remain where I am now, 50 years later. My chapter addresses the related questions of how we can recognise the new things that God will do for us, <clears throat> and how we can live together in a church where people will inevitably have differing views. The chapter was intended as a conversation starter, and I stand by what I offered. However, the vote has now been taken, and since then, there are additional questions that we now need to answer. If we believe that decisions on church policy are detrimental to the witness of the church in our setting, how can we bring about local change within a framework of Christian love? What do we do when we have talked enough? How do we choose when any option that we will adopt can be identified as a stumbling block to somebody else? And that is what I leave you to think about. Now is, is a really good time to respond to particular things that you may have heard from each of our presenters or to raise um, whole new questions or to recycle Jeff's very good questions. Um, we want this to be an, an interesting and engaging time together. We wish we could say that at the end of this we are likely to have the whole matter so firmly resolved that there never need be another meeting like this or another general conference session addressing the issue. That would be great, but I think it would be naive. However, I am intrigued by Jeff's questions and I hope they set the, uh, the scene for the kind of things that we can talk about for the next little while. Brian, did any question come over you as you were sitting there um, thinking or are you about ready to walk among the congregation like the angel among the candlesticks in the book of Revelation? I'm comfortable. Okay. <laughs> I'm feeling angelic. I'm going to start walking among the, the uh, members of the uh, congregation. But I really would like, I think, Jeff, you've set the scene for us so well. I think we have to spend some time uh, addressing that first question about what do we do when we feel as though a decision of a, of a global church has not fully recognised our situation. And I'd like to maybe get the other panel members to, to have a chew on this. Jeff, did, do you have some thoughts that you're willing to share? I thought that by asking the question I was now exempt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have some thoughts on the matter. I think, and this has been, this has been amplified to me by what Cara said this morning, that although there is affirmation from individuals and from members of her congregation, the fact that the church as a, an organisation has said we don't value your role is something that we have to address. Mm. I don't think it's enough from now on for individuals to express individual support. I think things have got to be done which show a level of institutional support as well. Now, 
fortunately, I know nothing about the constitution of all the various entities of the church, so I could be quite irresponsible in what I say. But some of the things that have been happening, there have been unions in different parts of the world that have said, we will not ordain any men from now on until this is, this mm -hmm. is resolved. There have been people who have requested that their ordination credentials be replaced with um, commissioned mm -hmm. minister credentials or whatever the, the proper topic is. I think there are things like this that we can do at an organisational level which do, does say, yes, we care mm. um, and we, we are with you in this. But with regard to what specific things should be done, um, I'm not really the person to say. Okay, thank you. But you did give us some interesting little um, opening of windows into what a responsible institutional response could look like. And those of you who follow church press, will, and who especially follow social media, will have seen this done by various European unions and uh, activities by congregations right across North America um, with really significant celebrations of affirmation of ministry of new male candidates, for example, who choose to be commissioned in the identical way to which women are commissioned um, with enormous response from their congregations and very significant celebration in union papers. So I don't think it's just naive or whistling in the dark for Jeff to suggest what he has. We've got some good illustrations of it uh, in parts of uh, our worldwide church response. Any other questions? Don't tell me that all the questions have been answered. Here we go. Lyle, I was hoping to hear from the others, but let me pick on my friend Ray. Ray, you were there on the floor. What was your emotional journey as you, uh, you'd fought long over your whole career for this vote to be a yes vote and it was a no vote? Uh, what was your immediate response and what's your more mature response? <laughs> I, thank you, thank you for nothing, Rob. <laughs> Uh, I don't think I've reached the point for a more mature response. Um, I have to say I can't remember ever feeling so alone in my church at the time the vote was taken. Uh, I, <coughs> sorry, I sent, I sent an email to my wife saying, I feel like an alien in my church. Uh, and that was in spite of, and, and I'm no prophet, that was in spite of knowing that the vote was going to fail. Because I said, I said to people like Cara, this vote is going to fail 40% to 60%, and it failed 41% to 59%. Uh, how do I feel since? Uh, not a lot different, I have to confess. Not a lot different. Uh, because I actually want to see something take place in our own context here, in Australia, in the South Pacific Division. That's what I want to see. 
so Jeff, some of the things that you've talked about, I want to see some of those things happen for us here. I think there are a lot of people with very good will uh, who also want to see that. I think it will be a very great struggle to get there. Um, as I said, I preached it at um, Memorial Church this morning. I received a huge amount of affirmation from the church members there. Uh, hundreds of people uh, said to me, love the sermon. <coughs> um, they want to see change. I had one lady come out and she said, um, women have got enough to do already with cooking and cleaning. <laughs> they don't need this as well. I, um, somebody said to me afterwards, why didn't you say, hey, I cook and clean at home too. Uh, <laughs> One person refused to shake hands with me because he said uh, a handshake shows that you haven't got a weapon in your hand, but he said, I don't know what's in your other hand. So, and that was in spite of the fact that right at the end of the service, I'd said the thing that actually illustrates that we're a church is if we're actually able to show love to each other. That's... That's the only sign that Jesus gave of what a, a community, what his community would be like if we're actually able to show love to each other in spite of the fact that we may disagree with each other. So I think as a community we've got a, a long way to go. I think that especially in an institution like Avondale we have a huge responsibility to train people to read the Bible contextually. So we've got a huge task. That's, that's an institutional task. And certainly we at Avondale have an opportunity there. It's a huge challenge. But we have an opportunity there to make a difference. But it's very difficult because after teaching um, theology students for almost 20 years, I have come to the conclusion that uh, many of them are very resistant to learning. All of us are. As human beings, very often we're very resistant to learning new things. So in spite of higher education, in spite of more and more resources for learning and so forth, we can very often go into something and come out of the other side not at all changed. Thanks to all the panellists this afternoon. I really enjoyed your presentations. Um, my question is following on from this morning's reflections. We've heard that the vote sent a really powerful message to the women in ministry in the church, but what we haven't talked very much about is the message it sent to the world outside the Adventist church. For a number of us with non-Christian friends and colleagues, this was a decision that was hard to believe, let alone hard to understand. And one-on-one, -on -one, some of us, I suppose, have been able to have some conversations with people to try and contextualize the world church's nature and response. One-on-one, -on -one, maybe that's, that's all we can do for now. But as a church, my question, I'm 
probably is a difficult one to answer, but how do we come back or how do we speak to the world when such a public declaration has been made about um, women and their role that is so out of step um, with, with the way the rest of the world views gender issues? I don't know if I'll respond exactly, Lindsay, but coming from South Africa, I, as, a young, as a young person, particularly just starting to study theology, was really disillusioned with the silence and inaction of my church in the face of apartheid. I couldn't understand that there were other churches far more proactive, far more vocal. And here we were, here, you know, we were the supposed remnant church, and uh, our church was silent, our church was divided, and our church was inactive. And as a young person, as, as I said, it was very disillusioning. Um, the vote that's just been taken at San Antonio also um, disturbed me greatly for, for a number of days. I, I couldn't believe that the church had voted in this way. I think sadly, those in leadership protect their own turf more than anything else. And uh, what's really called for is courageous leadership. Courageous leadership that will be willing to take a stand on the gospel and the values and the principles of the gospel. Sadly, it seems to me that our church is more dictated to by policy than by the gospel. And I have, I have articulated this in my own naive way that it seems that it's policy that governs the church rather than the values and the principles of the gospel. And so my firm conviction is, uh, you know, and I'm glad that we have Ray who, who's leading our institution, and beyond the walls of Avondale, across the South Pacific, we need courageous leaders who are not into protecting their own turf, you know, but who are really prepared to stand up for the gospel and the values and the principles of the gospel. And until we see that sort of courageous leadership at the highest uh, echelons of our church, then I'm afraid that we'll just continue on being, being dictated to John by the conservatives. And I hate those labels because part of me is liberal, part of me is conservative, part of me is progressive. I'm all of those things, so I don't like putting people in a box. But sadly, those people will continue to have the loudest voice in our church if other voices who are more middle of the road and more balanced, which is the central value of Avondale, balance, are not advocating strongly, clearly, powerfully enough the values and the principles of the gospel. Mm, thanks, Carl. Wendy, do you look like you have a speech coming on? We have another question coming up too. <laughs> Listen, I don't, I don't have a major speech, but I, I definitely resonate with what Lindsay said because um, I had a lot of those one-on-one -on -one conversations with past medical colleagues and, and other non-Christians that I have on my, on my own Facebook site. Um, and it was a difficult conversation to have. I resonate with most of what Kale just said, um, but I also think that where it's possible, the, the, the biggest witness is really our individual modelling of, of the values that we actually stand for. Um, and so while we don't have the news headlines, it's, it's modelling so that people see one-on-one -on -one that it is possible um, to value women, and I think that's really important. 
And that is that each time the vote has been taken by the GC, it's actually risen by 10%. And we should not forget that. That, um, there, that indicates that there is a change in the church. Sadly, it's, for some people, it's too late. And that's the tragedy. But there is a change coming. Uh, I talked to many of the people at the GC from our Pacific Islands and I have to say that they were totally on board with women's ordination. Uh, these are people from, the, some of them from the back blocks of Papua New Guinea and totally on board with women's ordination. And I was saying to myself, uh, the Spirit of God has been working with those people. I think we've done a good job in many cases in helping educate those people. So, and these are, these are places, some of these places are far more uh, male dominated than even some of the countries in Africa and South America. So I, I am optimistic in that regard, but I, I take Lindsay's question really seriously because we can, actually, we can actually burn off a whole generation of people, Lindsay, and that's the real tragedy. Another question. Thank you to everybody, the speakers this morning and again this afternoon. Um, I just come in, am coming from a medical background and if you look on spec, brain spec, spec scans, men think from their eyes to their occiput to their frontal lobes and back and forth this direction. Women go from their eyes to their occiput and much more in the temporal lobes in the relational areas. I am sure that our church can benefit from both. Thank you. I'm intrigued by the, um, the way we labelled our, our um, conversation this afternoon, the way forward. Um, and we've tried to think about that in very personal terms. We've tried to think about it. We've had questions about what can each of us individually do to carry forward to try and create a new culture that's more inclusive and more affirming. I wanted to ask uh, the members of the panel if you've actually seen the latest published version, uh, published issue of Spectrum. Has a whole, the whole magazine um, is very interested in trying to analyse the San Antonio vote and the way forward. I was intrigued by a German theologian who, who makes, I think, a striking case for a kind of Adventism that he calls unionism. Um, Jody would have loved this, and Jeff, her dad, would have loved it too. He, he understood Qantas unionism. This, this unionism that the German Adventist theologian was proposing was the idea in which the unions of the church, in the technical meaning of the term, are the most in touch with their culture and with their mission, and he, um, he is aware of our nervousness about the word congregationalism and avoids that and tries and asks us to try unionism. I'm wondering whether any of the panel members have got any opinion on whether there's any union in the South Pacific division that might be interested in moving forward in the way some of the North American and European unions have done. What's our chance for the 
bursting forth of unionism in the Adventist church in the South Pacific Division? I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> but I do want to say that I think it's very important that decisions on policy, things that are not in any way moral or in any way related to the theology of salvation, should be decided at the point closest to the people. Mm. I think that was the point the German was wanting to make and made a compelling case for how that works in the, a very secular Europe. We've had one more question. No, I think we're, we're just about at the end of our... We do, we do. And uh, Litiana, you're going to get the absolute last word here from the audience. So we're looking forward to that word. Well, really, I'm just wanting to say thank you. Um, I didn't go to the GC, um, but all my posts on Facebook seemed to indicate that I was there <laughs> because I was quite opinionated about many things and uh, journeyed a little bit with Lyle um, and mourned together with him while we were here at winter school. But really, my words today are really just to say thank you. I, I, I come on the back of what Lindsay talked about um, moving forward in the sense that if you look around the room that we're in, I think there would be more women here than men. However, that's my, my point is I want to thank the men who are here. As a person who is female and of color, I have worked in this church that I love for 20 plus years. And so resilience and working in ministry um, is all, as it has for many of us been a challenge. But I want to thank the advocacy of the men in the room who stand up, not for any personal gain, but to advocate. Because I do feel that the way forward really is that, that those in leadership who are men advocate for their colleagues, their sisters, their wives, their daughters, their nieces. Um, I truly believe that to be the way forward. And I want to thank Avondale College and you, Doc Ronville, for the way that in this institution you are doing that. Um, those are just my words. Thanks, Lidiana.